0: can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.
1: Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. I just heard the news this last week of the passing of Jay Wall Jasper. Many knew him as the editor of the Etni Reader for more than 15 years, though he published many articles for the likes of National Geographic, Huffington Post, Mother Jones, The Nation, and many more. I got to know him for The Great Neighborhood Book, something he worked on with a mutual acquaintance of ours in New York. We recorded this conversation you're about to hear in Jay's kitchen a couple years back in Minneapolis. This was the first time I had interviewed a journalist, let alone someone who had been doing it for more than 40 years. I was still feeling uneasy in my craft after only having done a couple dozen episodes And as we finished recording, I was getting my gear together and Jay said to me, I've listened to a couple of your interviews and after doing this one with you, I have to tell you that you really have a nice way of generating conversation. This meant the world to me at the time. And as I prepare for each new guest, I often think of Jay saying this to me. We met a few times for coffee or a drink after this to talk about projects like the book we discuss here at the beginning of this conversation. We shared an interest in communities and their value in our daily life and how we can design health into our environments. His contributions to Minneapolis and the Project for Public Spaces, which develops communities around the world, will be a big part of his legacy for his love of the neighborhood experience. Here is my conversation with Jay Wall Jasper. What are you proposing right now for the for the for the book to, to these guys?
2: Well, what we want to do is just chronicle. There's a lot happening. The guy I'm working on it with is a real estate professor at George mm. Washington University. Yeah, and he's just saying, you know, the market is exploding for walkable communities. You can get a lot more money, and you know, he just can't. He's just banging his head about trying to figure out why they aren't building more of it. Yeah, and some of it's zoning laws, and just some of it is the real estate industry is very conservative in the sense that they just want to keep doing what they know how to do and not yeah. learn something new but our idea with this book is just to say you know show that it's a it's a strong business trend to show that there's a demand out there and just simply to get people to you know wake up that this is one of the things you know and it's good for climate change it's good for affordable yeah. housing it's yeah. good for social equity it's just good for people's kind of happiness and, contentment. and so just kind of draw attention to that. I mean, that's been said before, but there's kind of new evidence, and uh, and particularly from kind of the business angle. You yeah. know, this isn't just just the public health officials and um, you know kind of greens saying this is a good idea, but also right. people saying you know there's this is sort of the, this could be the next. He's saying, and I think the evidence is there that you know the American economy got a huge lift from. Um, the automobile industry, which is really what sustained the American economy through right. the 20th century, that right. and warfare, right? Um, and he said this could be the 21st century equivalent of that. Giving people what they want could set off a, you know, a sort of new era of, of economic prosperity.
1: And if you think about, I mean, just the more recent example is what's happened in Minneapolis. You know, in this, even in the last like 10 years, even less. I mean, yeah. I feel like the, the last five years there's there's a real draw. To live close to the to the urban center in a yeah. way that's like yeah. that was that had disappeared through the eighties and nineties and early two thousands, and it feels like it's all all of a sudden coming back. And and you know this, I feel like just what's going on with you know these former small towns in America, and and you know what what people are sort of saying in, you know with their political voice at, at this point is like we want we want a place that feels familiar to us. Mm-hmm. And where we see we see faces that we recognize every yeah, day, even yeah. if it's in urban places. I mean, I moved to Brooklyn for that reason. That uh, you know, in two thousand, I I was kind of I, I don't know for whatever reason I, I went for a visit in ninety nine, and I came back and I said I, I think I need to be in in a
2: community for a little yeah, while.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly no, it, what it I is, did.
2: It is funny. I mean, it, it's uh, it's just I think basic to human nature is that right. people want to be around other people, and and we've kind of created a system that makes that really difficult, except in you know. When you when you're at the strip mall or whatever, right? Where did you so, where did you grow up? I grew up in Urbana, Illinois. Oh yeah, which is actually a it's a college town, older town, and it's fairly walkable. Yeah, I mean so and fairly bikeable. In fact, there I was a when I was a little kid already. They had bike lanes um, on the on the university campus. It's a university town. So um, I think it just, it, it, I grew up with a sense that that was just normal. Yeah. People walked places and that people rode bikes places. And so yeah. I was always kind of surprised when I'd go other places and go, how come no one's biking, no one's walking? What's yeah. what's wrong with this place? Yeah.
1: I used to go, I used to visit my my grandfather after my grandmother died when I was seven. He moved to, he. they had been living on, on a farm and he moved to this small town of about 2,000 people. And they were roughly like twenty miles from Waterloo Cedar okay, Falls sure. area, uh, Cedar Rapids, Cedar Falls. I always forget which Waterloo, one Waterloo right. Cedar Falls, Cedar, yeah, Cedar, Cedar Falls, Rapids right. is like right, exactly. You you know, know. forty miles <laughs> down the road. Because you went to University of You're Iowa, by, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and but every summer it was like this. The, you know, I would be announced in the in the newspaper. <laughs> you know, Kenny Monahan's son's coming to town, <laughs> or grandson's coming to town. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'd yeah. walk into the cafe and hey. Heard, yeah, heard he, you were coming. You know,
2: and that's not nostalgia. I mean, that is some something that's part of our wiring. Yeah, you know, I always course everybody. You know, we just went through the state fair here in Minnesota, and uh, two million people showed up. You know, and yeah, sure, it's fun to eat the corn dogs and to watch the pigs. But the biggest reason people are there is just to be among all the other people without cars. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, know. I mean, it's sort of like I always feel like I go a couple times every year, and I feel like for me, it's like. Hey, this is like experiencing a European pedestrian zone without having to pay a you know overseas airplane ticket. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. How did how did you end up in Minneapolis then?
2: I came here to go to graduate school, and then I left for a couple of years. Lived in Chicago, lived in Des Moines for a while, and just uh, got a chance to come back and jumped at it. Okay, because you know this is uh you know it's a it has the urban amenities and and yeah. kind of more all the time. What year was that? Uh, I moved I moved here first in 1978. Okay. And then moved back in 1984. Yeah, 1984. And um but you know, it it, it has the things that you like about a city and kind of more so. Uh, and then it's got this incredible nature that you, you know just available. I yeah. just uh I was on Saturday I was down on the you know what's called Pike Island or a, or or a to the Dakota Indians, yeah. you know. And it's like a completely magical place, and it's right—you know—it's 25-minute bike ride from my house, and it's—you know—it's in the sort of the epicenter of 3.5 million people, and you just feel like you could imagine the Dakota Indians, you yeah. know, you know, paddling up in their canoes.
1: Yeah, it, it's true. It's it's amazing, and that was one of the things that I I started to feel sort of deprived of in New York to some extent. Yeah, and it was just the the ease in which you could get to places like that. Um, if you if you really I mean you could you could take a subway and you could take trains and they have the jitney that goes out to the, the Long Island area yeah but it's a everything is a bit of work like yeah, plan yeah. plan four or five hours to get out of the city
2: <laughs> no no or and to it's get just, into yeah. nature you know well and you know yeah. Seattle Portland you know those places have great nature in the city but I mean just to be able to you know a person can come home from work and hop on their bike and you know in five Five minutes. I shouldn't say they didn't ride their bike to work and back, but you know, in five or ten minutes, you can be in somewhere that really feels natural. Yeah, you know, less than a five minute walk away, there's Lake Harriet. Here, yeah, so it's amazing. And if you, you know, and we're becoming, I feel like, you know, we're becoming more like Brooklyn, in terms of the. You know the coffee shops and the bars and the restaurants and the kind of more shops around and things like There's that.
1: There's more walkability. I mean, I I positioned myself very specifically when we moved back to be close to Linden yeah. Hills because it just felt like something a little more. My, my wife is is grew up there for the most part, and before that Moscow. So yeah. just two giant cities and she was a little nervous about it. I mean, she there there were parts of her she, they, they did have something similar to what we have where people go to cabins in the summers. Yeah. And but she would go to Ukraine and that's yeah. where her her was, yeah, the dacha. Yeah, yeah. So so the dacha was like a whole summer, you know, thing usually for them. Yeah. Um so we did that back and forth, you know, from from New York and went to my mom's cabin. So that was a very sort of similar thing for her. That felt but but the the year round living <laughs> <laughs> and, and commuting in a place like this was yeah. different for a while. Yeah. So she's gotten pretty used to it. And in fact, now when she goes to New York, she's sort of like the no, the noise pollution of New York starts yeah. is one of yeah. those things that I think starts to get to you. But but just being on the streets and my my kids went back for the first time in five years, and my daughter doesn't really remember much. She was two when, when we moved here, so I think for her. I, I, you could just see it becoming impressed on her on her mind while we were there just what was you know what she was sort of soaking in on subways and on city streets yeah, and yeah, just different things yeah. and museums that no, we went to. I, I
2: mean I love the energy in New York and, and uh, you know I mean the Twin Cities I think for a long time didn't know if it wanted to be a city or it yeah, wanted to yeah. be kind of a suburb or yeah. you know or most people probably say a small town and I think we've just kind of made the choice over the last 10 to 15 years that yeah that we want to be a city and and. Yeah. Uh, you know, in our neighborhood where we're sitting right now, you know, there was there was opposition to the first coffee shops that came in. Yeah. You know, I mean, there were, it was small opposition and there were a lot more people turning out the meetings at one of them. But there was a sense that, this, you know, this was a nice neighborhood because there was nothing going on here. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know,
1: even the mom and pop places that, that were that were popping up.
2: Yeah. It was just a kind of a built in thing that anything, you know, anything that would attract people then was just, you know, and I think the, the fear isn't. They're going to be people. The fear is there's going to be cars. Yeah, because people couldn't imagine, you know, that people would walk to a coffee shop. Well, yeah. You know, why would you drive to a coffee shop? <laughs> yeah, I mean that kind of
1: defeats the purpose. Well, I remember. So, so you came in '78. Yeah, and I mean that the sort of the you know the the age of Mary Tyler Moore period yeah, in yeah, Minneapolis, yeah. where I do <clears> think that that Minneapolis was at that moment really trying to define itself as a city. You know, stuff was sort of happening around the U of M. Yeah, there was sort yeah. of a, a you know a uh, nightlife happening with like disco and all that stuff. And then somewhere probably around, you know, when you came back again, 84, the, the, you know, because I, I, I grew up, um, just North of, of <laughs> Minneapolis, like a, a, you know, first tier and, you know, mm-hmm. partly second tier yeah. suburb where just right on the border where, you know, you're ten minutes, twelve minutes from downtown, but you could also walk to a, a cornfield. You know, yeah, it was like yeah. it was so yeah. were, everything was so close. Still, at that point. And, but in the, right around that time period, that sort of early mid eighties, you could just see the spread start to happen. It yeah, was just like yeah. pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think by the nineties, you know, the, the downtown area was, was, uh, was sort of problematic because it was a ghost town at night and there was a lot of crime yeah. for anyone who <laughs> dared go down there. <laughs> yeah.
2: For... No, the streets kind of cleared out after five. No, it, it's really interesting. But I think that, you know, what's so interesting to me is that the thing that people most fear is the solution. Yeah, you, know, you go back to Jane Jacobs and its people on the street are the single best crime prevention mechanism right, there is right. because, you know, criminals aren't stupid. They're not going to mug somebody, you know, when there's 8 or 10 people around, all right. of them with cell phones they can call the police, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, so, you know, even if they don't intervene, you know, I mean, so it's just it's just it, it, there's just I don't know, it's a little bit the American psyche which is still I mean, I think it's fading a lot. But there's still that notion of kind of leave me alone, you know, and the you know the best way to ensure my safety is to be separate from all other people. Yeah. And yet, really, you know, you know, there's really safety in numbers in terms of just you know the healthcare in rural areas isn't as good. And you know, if someone broke into your home and and you know taped you up in uh, in a chair with masking tape over your mouth, you know, someone wouldn't know for three or four days, right?
1: I mean, and, and, I mean that's that's sort of an interesting thing to think about right now. Where where, where are we where are we at with the American psyche? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that. I've had this conversation with a few people lately because I feel like we are we are at a bit of a loss of identity period as far as yeah. all of this is concerned. It's
2: a fraught moment. I mean, and I think, boy, I didn't sort of see some of the political events of the last two years happening. Yeah, and so you know, it's hard to say. You know, the one. As we're talking about this, I'm struck over um, thinking about the the Pew Charitable Trust, which is someone that's been kind of doing um, research and, and uh, data diving on, um, you know, the American public for, God, I think 30 or 40 years. And they did a big uh, political survey. And, and what they found out was that the most, the, uh, the, what, the element that that most determined whether someone would be a Republican or a Democrat, a progressive or a conservative, yeah. was the population density of the place they lived. Yeah. You know, and if you think about it, it makes a certain sense because if you actually believe people working together can solve problems, then you'd be more inclined to want to have neighbors nearby and maybe have a coffee shop or a tavern where people could gather. And if you really thought that the solution to problems was just simply building walls and separating people and, you know, keeping the bad guys away, then, you know, then of course the, the ex-urban or rural life would, um, would have more appeal. And yeah. I just, I found that just fascinating that yeah. that's the case. And I'm, I'm a little bit of a political junkie. So I, uh, the New York Times about a month ago or a month and a half ago did a precinct by precinct map. Oh, I saw this. Of the yeah, 2016 yeah. presidential election. And it's really interesting because even in these red, red counties, oftentimes the the county seat, you know, would be blue, hmm. you know, or at least the inner parts of, you know, the inner precincts of the county seat, <laughs> right. you know, and so places, you know, and so it just, you know, it really confirmed the Pew Charitable Trust notion that just, you know, when people live closer together, they just have a different, kind of a different worldview, but certainly a different political view. Yeah. And I mean, and the worldview probably precedes the political view, but
1: right, and, and and you know, there's there's a part of I mean, it, it's almost hard to imagine. I, I mean, going to places like the small town in Iowa when I was when I was a kid, there wasn't much for diversity. I think they had yeah. like a, there was an Indian doctor in the town that was kind of a big deal, yeah. And yeah. everybody everybody liked him because there was only one. Yeah, like, it's comfortable <laughs> for me right now, but you know, there there was uh, there was this you know sort of sense that the world was changing too yeah. and that was that was hard for i think a lot of the a lot of the older population and yeah. and you know for and even in, even in my experience and i grew up in a somewhat diverse neighborhood here g- going to new york was definitely a huge change yeah. for me and and yet once it becomes the norm and you put yourself back in a situation where the, the, you are you know just in a in a you know a train or a bus or you know crowded place full of just white people it feels a little uncomfortable it's kind of funny how you can kind of reverse the way that you that you see things because i'm i'm always i mean maybe it's just my personality but there's something for me in a in a in a diverse group of people even 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 diverse ages like i just find i am sort of drawn to people for one reason or another because i think there's something unique about them and i kind of want to find a way to have a conversation with them
2: absolutely and yeah it is it is uh Although, you know, it's funny because I was born in Iowa and my parents tell these really interesting stories. My dad was a coach, so they lived in a lot of different small towns. And, and my dad would say, you know, there'd be one small town, you know, that um, was, you know, where everybody was Polish Catholic. And then the next small, t- and then three quarters of a mile away, there was a small town that was most mostly Quakers, yeah yeah, you know and so you think those two towns got along not at all oh, I mean no. the Polish Catholics you know <laughs> made noise and drank and you know
1: <laughs> even where, where in Iowa where, where my yeah. grandparents were it was the, there were the Polish Catholics and the Irish German Catholics at and they had they had problems with each other it was just, I don't know if they really had problems but yeah. they certainly had plenty of jokes about each yeah. other
2: <laughs> i I think really just to kind of get off the topic a little bit I mean I just think that the emergence of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and things like that—you know—there's always a little bit of fear of the other, yeah—and just completely cranked it up to you know to volume eleven, um, and I think that's what we saw. what's what we've seen in recent, you know, in the election and and the whole the whole Trump phenomenon.
1: Yeah, and and it is going to draw, in the the opposite reaction. It's not it's not quite the same fear based tactics. Yeah. But you certainly have like two ends of a spectrum that are, you know, sort of yelling as
2: loud as they can yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: over, the, over the masses.
2: I mean, there's a natural suspicion that people have for people right. that are different. But then there's a way that that just becomes fed upon and made toxic. And right. you know, I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah. And this, you know, this all affects people's health, you know, because when you're a pariah group, you know, when you're kind of looked down upon and cast aside and, you know, attacked. You know, that has a lot to do with your kind of disposition and uh, what you see your sense of possibilities are in the world.
1: Yeah, and and that's what's become most interesting. And to, to me, as, as a health practitioner, you know, I started... The reason that I kind of pushed into starting to do this podcast wasn't just me wanting to talk about, you know, healthcare and more health-related issues because yeah. I felt like the the issues I was seeing in my practice, I I just felt like things were starting to shift into a place where this is not necessarily... Uh, an internal medicine issue or orthopedic yeah. issue. I th- I, f- I started feeling like there's there's a lot more going on here. That's like, oh, it's almost kind of like a community based health issue, yeah. you know. And it's it's mental emotional stuff going on, and you know how how do we start addressing or or talking about this stuff? Yeah, and you know I did start the podcast in, in the fall of 2016. <laughs> <laughs> must have been it must have been tapped into
2: something. Yeah. Well, I've been doing some work with something called the Well-being Trust, um, which is uh, based in Oakland and in Seattle. and it's a foundation that was created. There was a group of Catholic nuns that um, two groups of Catholic nuns that both had hospital systems and they merged. And so I think one of the nuns got paid out and they you know got an awful lot of money and they founded this trust to really, you know get at, you know what are the Deeper psychological and spiritual and physical, yeah. you know, yeah. illness in our society, and how you create health in all those realms. Yeah. And it's really interesting because they have a focus on, um, you know, improving clinical medicine.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But you know, if you don't pay attention to the social factors and the psychological factors, it doesn't matter how much you improve clinical medicine because there'll just be more and more people. Yeah. And they're really focused on what are called the deaths. Deaths of despair, which I think have been over in the last 10 years, a million people have died from suicide, um, from drug abuse, you know, opioids a lot, yeah. and alcoholism, you know. Or, or, and uh, and so those deaths, I mean, you know, that's kind of unprecedented in our yeah. history. I, and uh, they're all increasing at an incredible level. If current trends continue, it'll be 2 million deaths over the, yeah. the next 10 years. Yeah. And so, what do you do about that? I mean, obviously, um, yeah, you know, and, and a lot of the chronic disease is preventable. If people would stop smoking, would have better diets, would get more exercise, but people don't. Yeah, and um, you know you can scold them, which has not proven to be very effective. <laughs> yeah, and so you just really need to kind of understand what are the currents that make people so hopeless and that make people you know a little self-destructive at times. Yeah, you know, I mean that's the crux of American healthcare right now. I mean, we can cure cancer, but. These chronic diseases are still going to be with us, and, um, and 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 the thing is, like, what's what's behind that
1: chronic disease, or what's behind the smoking and the yeah. alcoholism and all those things? Yeah, seem to me there's 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 a uh, Brene Brown had something in her recent book about how you could tie just about all of the the, the sort of big chronic diseases to loneliness on some level, yeah. or that 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 act actually seemed to be the the biggest factor in. You know the the that sort of you know biggest number of of deaths in the in the health yeah. system.
2: And that's I'm so glad you you brought that up because uh, Vivek Murthy, you know, who was the the uh, Surgeon General under Obama, yeah. you know, and is a hero to many people just because of he was just such a incredibly empathetic guy.
1: Yeah,
2: and you know the son of Indian immigrants, you know, grew up relatively poor in Miami. Mm-hmm. And um, he made a big deal. He did the big, you know, the call to action about walking. But the focus of his work since leaving office has been about the loneliness epidemic in America. Is that right? Yeah. And it's really interesting because the data is there. You know, we all know that walking is good for you and healthy eating is good for you and, and uh, paying attention to vital science is good for you. But, you know, as much as anything else, social connection Is one of the best things you can do for your immune system. One of the best things you can do to stay healthy, and you know, and it's almost like that should people should be being they should be go to the doctor and be prescribed walk twenty minutes a day, but also spend at least two hours of time with people. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because the assumption is you know, I I think it's more like six hours is what's the magic number there. Is that right? Yeah, but what's interesting? We kind of presume, oh, that means deep conversation with your friends or you know, really family time together. But actually, some of the research is showing it's just simply being in a park with other people, being in a coffee shop with other yeah. people. It's that that kind of proximity that dent, you know that comes from density. You, you dense, are a part of a community. community. Yes, and exactly.
1: You, you really have that sense. Yeah,
2: yeah, and, and you don't. It's been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, despite. Facebook putting in millions of dollars to try to prove that, that, that a social media network does not confer the same health benefits. They yeah. were really hoping <laughs> that it would, but it doesn't. You know, And it's just, there seems to be, I don't know, you know, you can, you know, humans are animals in a way, Yeah. you know, in a good way <laughs> as well as a bad way. And um, so I think you can really learn about a lot about our basic nature by watching kids, yeah. little kids. Yeah. And little kids just, you know, I live close to this really wonderful park here, and the kids in the park are so happy, and they're running, and they just like to look up at everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think we are all just wired for connecting with people yeah. that way. Yeah. And that's the way, we talked about the fear of the other, yeah, and the suspicion of people that, you know, don't have the same skin tone, or don't have the same language, or don't have the same customs, well, how are you going to familiarize? How are people going to get familiar with one another? And it's a two-way street. Yeah. Well, people meeting in public spaces because that takes the, oh, you know, oh, those criminal Mexicans or oh, those, you know, stiff, cold white people.
1: Yeah.
2: And, you know, if you're in a park and your kids are playing together and you see, oh, oh they're having that for their picnic and we're having this. I mean, that kind of stuff just breaks down those walls. Yeah. And plus, it's like you know, it's like having a fabulous immune boost. It's it's like vitamin C times three hundred thousand, right?
1: <laughs> and I, I've I've uh, I've read that it's right around the age of seven that that whole worldview starts to shift. You know, mm-hmm. at, before that, a lot of those fear-based um, preventative things <laughs> that, that keep yeah. us from, from sort of you know connecting with younger, or older, or different yeah. different cultures are, are just gone. So you know that's that's one of those things that we should probably you know pay some attention to in our education system. That yeah. if we're going to integrate, that's probably the, the time period to actually start working on on that within our school systems. Because what happens a lot of times instead is it happens in high schools. Yeah, and you know, my son's high school is having some problems right now. Partly, you know, and and there are some race issues going on, but I think part of it is because they're coming from a different place. Yeah, in high school, it just it yeah. becomes a little bit too difficult for for certain kids. And I think they're still. I think even middle schoolers are still a little bit more open, but by high school, it's it becomes a yeah, much people more kind of dug thing. in.
2: That's the age where you most you know belonging to you know a gang is you know in the broadest sense, Right, right? Yeah it's just basic to teenagers and just and also they don't want to do anything that's uncool you know i mean so yeah. it, it, in, in a way teenagers are some of the most conservative people in the world in terms <laughs> of just true. wanting to really you know just you know live by the you know the dictates of their you know their cohort <laughs>
1: Going back into your career a little bit, yeah. you, you started you start writing right out, of, right out of the University of Iowa?
2: Yes, I did. I, uh, I actually came up here to go to graduate school in, in uh, Minneapolis and, we, uh, and just got What's, really what involved. What school was it? Pardon? What, what school I was, was in, you go in journalism to? grad school here. Okay, okay. You know, and uh, wrote a lot about music in those days, oh, which yeah? seems a little far afield from what I do now, yet I think it's a lot the same. I mean, because music is just, it's a way that people come together. It, it's it's, it's an expression of people. And and I just, what I really love, I mean, I have all sorts of important social missions and goals, but you know, what's really fun for me as a writer is telling people stories.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, I loved it. I mean, you know, musicians have such interesting stories to tell and, you know, and and they sing stories too. Yeah. And so I did that, but um then wound up, Worked for a while in Better Homes and Gardens magazine as a travel editor. Mm. Uh, worked for a political, kind of a progressive political magazine in Chicago, and I wound up here at a place called Utne Reader. Yeah, yeah. You and were the
1: you were the editor for a, a yeah, while. Yeah, for right? quite a while. Yeah. yeah,
2: for about fifteen years. And Utne Reader was a Reader's Digest from a more progressive point of view.
1: And you, because because you talked about everything from like politics to. Culture to wellness to yes, science. Yes. I love that job because there was spiritual. really nothing that was
2: out of bounds. Yeah, as a subject matter, it, was, it yeah. was
1: great. I mean, still, it's still yeah. around, though, isn't it? Yes, yeah,
2: still around, still yeah. being published. I, yeah. They still they run quite a few of my articles still. Oh, cool. But wellness was a big theme yeah. of the of the magazine, and it seemed like community was, too. Community was too, and so those are the two. When I left the magazine after a good long run. Um, those were the things I was most interested in just kind of exploring and then the the connections between the two of them and you know it's funny I've always been ever since I was a little kid I've just been a person a wanderer I just love to see new places just to kind of look around it's kind of my meditation it's my yoga a little bit and my mental yoga and um, so I always just loved you know and it doesn't have to be some glamorous place I mean just here's a Here's a you know, um, my your, your first trip to Omaha, or your first trip to you know uh, Mason City, Iowa, or something. Yeah. I Just kind of what makes this community tick.
1: I'm I'm about the same with all that stuff, and it's funny about about music too, because I was a musician in my yeah. t- most of my twenties, you know, like you know, pl- touring and playing around yeah. and stuff. But I think it, it started with me being in the crowd. You know, I. Yeah. I I, I used to, I had a radio show in college and we used to get free tickets to go see whatever was happening at First Avenue or fine lines mm-hmm. and stuff downtown. and. I think I got just as much out of just being in the crowd, seeing, like, just being sort of smashed together and seeing yeah, who these people yeah. were face to face or sort of having a bird's eye view and just yeah. looking at the crowd as much as I liked watching the music. That, that, oh, that, sure, yeah. That, that part of, you know, music for me yeah. has always been huge. I think that's, that's, I don't think anything I've done hasn't been a little bit about having this community around it. Yeah.
2: No, me too. And, uh, so just, that's when I just started exploring and I, I became more serious about that. You know, it's funny. I did this book called "The Great Neighborhood Book" with Project for Public Spaces. Yeah, yeah. And you know, writing books always just is way more work than you ever thought it was going to be. And and I was on a really short deadline for that book, and I and I I just thought, how in the world am I going to write this book? And then I started just thinking about all the stuff I had learned, just kind of I thought goofing off. Wandering around the streets of some city, kind of going, "Hmm, that's interesting," or "Wonder yeah. why they do it this way." And I realized I'd only been researching the book for twenty years. Yeah. <laughs> the writing part, I knew I could do really well, but I was thinking, "God, we're really we're really shaky on the research here." And in fact, and and just all those stories kind of came back to me. So, so I met the deadline, and and uh, the book's still in print. So people seem to like it.
1: I, I got I got I think I got a piece of that, or you know, because Kathy. Who connected us? Yeah, some, yeah. She um, had shared with some sh- shared with me. I think maybe when you came to Brooklyn one time, we tried meeting up for yeah, dinner or yeah. something. But I I started reading some of some of that. I didn't realize there was an entire book with it, though.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean it was it was uh, and uh, it was fun, you know. And and Kathy Kathy Madden of, of Project for Public Spaces, you know, she's very interesting. She grew up in Minnesota. Yeah, and she's just kind of a fearless person. I mean, they yeah. had a. A gig one time, you know Bryant Square Park, which is right behind the New York Public Library, yeah. was it was Needle Park they called it. You know, it's because where mm-hmm. everybody went to buy drugs, and um, so they were supposed to research what they could do to, um, you know, make it a place where everybody felt comfortable. Yeah. And so, so Kathy just barged right in. And it started interviewing the drug dealers is that <laughs> about right? why why is this a good place to sell drugs? And they go, oh, yeah, it's a great place because you can't see what's on the other side of the hedge and stuff like that. And so, you know. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. She I, grew up in a hotel. Yeah. So she just always is, you know. <laughs> I mean, literally, you know, her family's famous for Madden's yeah. Resort. right. And, right. Know, the family business yeah. really before the resort was this hotel in downtown Little Falls. Yeah, and so she just grew up with people around all the time, and so that's you know she has amazing people skills that way. Yeah,
1: and 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 I've had some conversations with her husband Fred too about you know just the way that you kind of and and I feel I feel like that you're such a great match for having met them because yeah. he's talked to me a little bit about like you know specific places that they find in these you know, and and yeah. basically. Why, and just looking at why do people tend to congregate in this space? yeah, or you know sometimes you're talking about some place where there was like a a little someone had made this like little bench around a tree. yeah, and for some reason, it was the most popular place for people to go sit. They would kind of all sit with their backs to each other, right? because yeah. you're you're sitting with your back to the tree. But it's sort of like you were talking about earlier, there's something about just being next to this person. We don't have to have a conversation, but it's comfortable. like we're yeah, we're in yeah. this space. We're all kind of looking out at what's happening here.
2: No, I think there's some really rules of, you know, or, or guidelines on how to make places popular. And it seems like we've just, like a lot of things, just forgotten that. Yeah. There's a, a, one of the great mentors to, to Fred Kenton, Kathy Madden, was a guy by the name of William H. White. And um, he said, It's really impossible to create, it's really difficult to create a place that people don't want to go. What's really amazing is how often we do it. You know, because the concern isn't about creating a great place for people to gather. The concern is police enforcement or what can we do, you know, how can we maximize sales or all these kinds of things. And so, you know, just giving people a great place is usually way down the list of the priorities. And, you know, and a lot of the design world today, too, is about making sort of a sculptural statement with all the elements. and, And so they're not, you know, they're just... We just have kind of, I think, forgotten that that deep human instinct about creating places that you know where people want to go, and I think you know that's what placemaking is all about. Right, right. And placemaking is really tied in with with community health and with personal health and things like that. And I think we're we're kind of rediscovering those things, and we're rediscovering it from you know people in the developing world, from people in poor neighborhoods, from you know the, you know why does a certain vacant lot in in some lower income neighborhood, you know, just flourish with people. And why do other ones, you know, and then why does some planned park, you go through it and there's no one there at all? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean just simply because there's just there is there is some basic uh, principles on creating places people want to go and people just ignore that.
1: What what did you what did you learn from the project for public spaces
2: you know, book that you worked on. I mean, as far There's, as as far a, as
1: placemaking, are there any like really hard rules that people yeah. should just be aware of?
2: Well, I always joke, and you know, it's not funny now because as we speak, Hurricane Florence is bearing down on the East Coast. But yeah. I always, you know, depending, I do a lot of speaking. You know, so I always depending depending on where I'm at, I go, okay, if we just got news that there was a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake or a wildfire coming our way, and I could just leave you with uh, uh, two. Ideas on how to make a great place. They are give people a place to hang out together, and give people a place to walk together. I mean, those are the that, that's the core. That's the mm-hmm. foundation of making a great place. Yeah. And then beyond that, um, just a lot of things that you know, uh, places should be able to be flexible. You know, a place like you know some of the deadest places um, in any city are the tennis courts and the baseball fields. <laughs> Because it's this huge amount of space yeah. given over to an activity that people only spend so much time doing.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, so if you can, the whole notion of mixed use is popular in kind of the planning profession now, but just all of our spaces should be mixed use. You know, you can use it for something different in the winter than in the summer. Mm-hmm. Use it for something different in the evening than during the day. You know, use it, you know, when the kids get off of school in the afternoon, it does one thing, but when places serve a lot of functions, You're right? That, you know, and and so just, and you know, I think so much of suburban development, there's nothing inherently wrong with suburbs or with suburban people. But the problem with suburban development as practiced since, you know, 1950 or so has just been everything just has one single use. Uh, This is where you go shop. Yeah. This is where you go play sports. This is where you go to school. This is where you go buy things, which is a lot like shopping, I guess. You know, this is where you go to work. This is where you live. And when all those things are separate, it's just, there's just a lot of emptiness. There's just a lot of uh, separation between people. You put all those things together and that's, that's why people love Brooklyn. That's why people love being around the lakes in Minneapolis. That's why people love any great place. That's why people love the state fair. That's why people love theme parks. Yeah um just because you have there's all this energy going on and you have choices. Yeah.
1: There's there's something about being sort of smashed together in a place. Like yeah. I, you know it's funny because I I haven't lived in New York for for 5 years, but I go back and and do t- work and do trips there and I go to the same I stay in the same yeah. neighborhood yeah. roughly. And because I've, you know, known people residents in this neighborhood for almost 20 years now, I, they don't even know that I haven't left <laughs> I mean, they, it, to, to them. I'm still, I still, yeah, exactly. I, I'm still a neighborhood guy, which yeah. is, which, oh, is, that is great. which is funny. But there are a lot of people that had I not been sort of put in proximity with and gotten to know over such a long period of time yeah. that there's no way that I would have ever become friendly with them in a place where yeah. there is so much separation of, of, of use.
2: Yeah at project republic public spaces we used to really say that you know that public spaces are the fundamental common ground you know everybody's where's the common ground in america well literal common ground are the places where people cross paths you know and uh you know and that's why gentrification is such a baneful thing in our lives because that means that you know the people that you'll run into in your neighborhood or on your street are all going to be just like you, you know, at least in terms of income. And, and so it's really where people can come together, where they can meet each other as friends and neighbors and, and, uh, citizens, you know, that's the, that's the crux of democracy. I mean, that's what's really, that's what's really needed right now.
1: I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of care that gets taken to of each other In those situations, you know, we, we think that, I don't know, that, that economically it's, it, it should be, it's, it's more comfortable if you, if you're, you know, in the same sort of tier of, of, you know, people, but there's, there's something, there's, there is this need to, to take care of someone as well. I think that that it, it almost doesn't get... It's like a muscle that doesn't get worked often enough for people, and so they don't they're uncomfortable with that, but it's so easy when you when you yeah. have the opportunity and like you know the thing with New York is that a lot of people think that New Yorkers are rude, and you know i mean they, they are a fear in in Times Square <laughs> <laughs> but if you get outside of there and anything goes on, I've been in so many situations where i've I've watched someone just like rise up to take care of somebody else, yeah. For no reason, or if, or you know, even if you're just if if you're clearly like lost, or you you know, you ask somebody for help, they'll go way out of their way no. to, to make sure that you know
2: you, you get to. I've had you're the on. very same experience. I've spent a lot of time just wandering around New York, and it's you know, there's a little bit of a gruff, uh, you know, because you're, you're you're meeting <laughs> so many people every minute in New York that you you put up a little like it's like a little plexiglass, yeah. yeah. But the minute. You know, I, I can't tell you how many... Pull out a map sometime in New York. Yeah. You know, or pull up the map on your phone even. And, and three or four people will say, can I help you? Where are you trying to go? You know, you know, I, it, it's like you're in their town Yeah. and they have a certain pride in their mastery of it and they want to help you. I mean, so I find New Yorkers... And be, they've
1: been there. Like yeah. anybody, almost everybody who's there is from somewhere else, Yeah. you know? Yeah. So there's something about like anyone with distress where you're like, I hate to see someone go
2: through no, this. No, exactly. Yeah. And it, it is... Uh, it's remarkable because I mean I think you know I mean a little bit one of the places we're at at this particular historical moment is do you ultimately believe that people are good that care for each other or that people are kind of driven by um, just selfishness you know and I think the one of the political ideologies, uh, you know, prevailing today is, you know, is fear, is that, you know, everybody's going to screw you, everybody's going to take advantage of you and all that. And if you live your life that way, you'll probably live a shorter life, yeah. you know, and if you really do, you know, and yeah, sometimes you're going to get burned in life and sometimes you're going to, you know, someone's going to take advantage of you. But is, is is that the worst possible thing in the world? You're right. You know, you're going to enjoy your life a lot more if you just kind of believe the best in people and mostly you're going to be rewarded for that.
1: Yeah. I feel like it's a
2: philosophical, I know, but, well, no, but
1: I, I think that's, it's, I feel like it's a theme that I keep kind of bumping into with people when I have these conversations is, is I think, I I think if if the other part of it is that if, if we're told that we're not good people in some ways, you know, I feel like there's, 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 there's always something out there sort of trying to say that, you know, this, this us versus them thing, like you're a bad person. I mean, it's the thing I I really have a hard time with, with, even with the you know being uh, people being lumped into these groups of liberals or Trumpers or whatever, is that it's 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 so generalized yeah. and 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 there's so many people. I, I, I just think the, the the general population is actually are, are really good people, and if and if they're sort of you know expected to be that way, and if they're sort of you know if if you if you say that they're good, they're going to be better than if you if you say that they're bad. Not
2: exactly. Exactly. You probably have run across the work of Blue Zones. Yeah. And you know, one of their chief uh, guiding principles is make the healthy choice the easy choice. Hmm. You know, and that's a little bit the same, you know invest in people. Yeah. And believe that they're gonna do better and they will do better. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I, I keep thinking, you know, we're in Minneapolis, you know, of course where the mist, the bridge, you know, collapsed over the Mississippi yeah. River. Yeah. And there was a school bus that was sort of teetering you know and the guy the motorist who stopped and shepherded all these kids out of that was an undocumented latino immigrant yeah um yeah you know, so where does that fit in with the popular conception of these criminals coming up from the south of the border to you know to take away everything we have yeah. i mean you know ridiculous balderdash yeah. and,
1: and, and and i wonder how much that is actually popular like i, I wonder i yeah. wonder if these aren't just sort of like you know political devices that are that are being thrown around
2: or oh no i think it's a really calculated campaign yeah. to you know to divide us yeah and then you know and then you know so other so the people that are in charge can stay in charge yeah you know one of the things that my all my work about community and about physical activity and about public spaces brought me to the idea of the commons Mm. Um, and the commons are all those things that we own together and you kind of think well yeah but that's not much is it but if you think about it the streets are a commons the parks are a commons Mm, schools are a commons you know all public government services are a commons even in a way things that we don't own are still sort of ours like our favorite neighborhood coffee shop yeah and you know the internet's a commons, and you know the sky and the air and the environment. There's really a lot of things we depend much more for our survival and our happiness on things that belong to all of us, as opposed to the things that we just happen to own privately. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I'd, you know, I'd give up my house and uh, my clothing before I'd give up <laughs> the oxygen in the atmosphere. <laughs> right.
1: And I think I think if we if we were you know. Allowed to pay attention to this more yeah. in some way that that we would that we would come together yeah. for for these different causes when we yeah. when we realize that like this this is this is our commons
2: yeah and what's interesting in, in, I did a book about the commons called All That We Share a field guide to the commons and I did you know quite a lot of research on you know looking historically at the commons and and um, one of the most interesting. Um, Sort of research areas that I didn't know that much about you know we we've been told there's the selfish gene
1: right yeah, yeah, and that
2: evolution is based upon this you know the the survival of the fittest and all things like that, but there's just as much evidence, probably more evidence that actually you know human evolution and human survival has been based upon cooperation, yeah, there certainly are you know there is a certain selfishness that's that's a part of our makeup, but you know but we tend to be a lot more cooperative than we are selfish. Maybe,
1: maybe, maybe there's a gene that's like the fear of loneliness gene that's yeah. even more powerful than the selfish Yeah, exactly. Deal.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, you know, the new realms of science, you know, there's some fascinating things in there. And sometimes it's just, you know, a certain, a certain uh, idea that happens to sort of fit the prevailing worldview yeah. gets all this attention. But there's a lot of things that just fly completely in the face of that.
1: Yeah. I, I, I get very sort of taken in by the the sort of Malcolm Gladwell type writings, you know, sometimes yeah, yeah. where it's like, it's so convincing, you know, and I, yeah. because I'm a bit of a science junkie, like yeah. I'll, I will read these things, to, you know, one, the next new thing that comes out. And I can be very sort of convinced for some period of time. But I feel like just being in, being in the space of the writing and, and processing it, then I start to see it everywhere, but I almost always find... You know the counter to the example, and that it seems to be like a a, a big thing. There was this, you know, the the one that he had not too long ago, um, about he w- he was talking about school. I had a, a child at the time that he was talking about school-age children being pushed forward into school, and and that was that that that's going to cause problems for this child because they're going to be smaller. And their their intelligence that, you know, even six months back yeah, is, yeah. is so different that it can start to affect their, you know, their their ability to have, you know, sort of confidence in the, in what they're doing. But, and I have a child who was going through exactly this. He was, he's had a late August birthday. We oh, yeah, yeah. Trying to figure out whether to push him into the next school year or hold him yeah. back and very smart in certain ways and behind in other ways. And, you know, we ended up, you know deciding that he because he was tall and because he was so advanced in some things that to hold him back seemed seemed like it, it, yeah. would, it would be worse for him and yet this book I was totally sold that we should have waited another year oh really yeah yeah and, and yet I think a lot of what he's gotten confidence wise has come from overcoming some of those obstacles so okay, yeah. that wasn't part yeah. of that wasn't anywhere you know touched in the book so yeah
2: I think one thing in that book is you know it's like the there's like four months that are preponderance of national hockey league players were born mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. and there's just sort of something about whatever, you know, for some reason, yeah. you know, they were the biggest kids on the ice or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, <laughs> And it's just amazing. Yeah. Well, there's a whole notion, um, you know, that's, that's often treated like gospel truth in our society, the notion of homo economists, which is that, you know, that, and most economists believe people do this, you know, that they basically make all their decisions just kind of based upon s- self interest. You know, and, and, and the homo economist argument is that you should, by all means, you should put your child into school as soon as possible because they'll have more years earning in the market. <laughs> and yet, you know, that, you know, that sort of seems ridiculous, but, I mean, but, you know, that kind of reasoning. Is affecting a lot of things in our culture. It's just you know what you know what maximizes profit, what maximizes wealth, and not paying any attention to the to the wreckage that's left behind by that. Yeah, and uh, you know, but the the whole notion that we're dri- you know as a species we're driven by just simply economic betterment. You know, it doesn't it's just a, it's a lie. Yeah, yeah. You know, as a journalist, I mean, one of the things that's always been one of my my kind of nose for news is I try to look at things that I see in my life, around me, in my neighborhood, my community, my group of friends, my family, that don't tend to get written about or talked about in the broader media. Mm -hmm. And I go, that's really interesting to me, you know, that, you know, such things don't really exist if you just believe what you, you know, see on netflix and what you see you know on your favorite website sources and things like that and i kind of go because i think there's just you know the media is not an accurate assessment of the world around us right um and and particularly the larger the media the less that's true and there's just there's an awful lot they miss because of their own sort of uh perceptions and biases and so i'm always and self-interest and, Yeah, you know
1: i think there's there's we, we we long to be entertained on some level, yeah. and and they know that they can make yeah. money off of that. And whether it's a news or a book or yeah. a, a, you know show or whatever, they 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 know they're tapping that to some extent, and you yeah. know, trying trying to hit. There there's this probably uh, cross between or whatever the, the where the paths cross between what's happening culturally, and you know, and, yeah. and that that plays into like all of the the fears and all, you know, all, all the excitements or whatever yeah. that are going on. So they, they, they find those moments to really capitalize on some of that stuff. And yet yeah. at the same time, there's, there's plenty that can come out of that. That's yeah. very thought provoking, but it's not necessarily real, but no, you know, no, exactly. You know, I feel like you, you like to kind yeah. of get in, get down at the street level and <laughs> with with everything no. I've read that you've done. Yeah. <clears throat> you know,
2: it's interesting. One of the things you asked me a couple of minutes ago is, you know, what I learned um doing the book the Great Neighborhood book with uh Project for Public Spaces and one of the it's this this is one of the big Project for Public Spaces lessons, but uh this was just driven home over and over in the book, is that the community is the expert. You know, in your yeah. particular because we you know we live in kind of an expert culture now. And uh You know, so the urban planner is going to tell you what's best for your neighborhood, or the economic planner is going to tell you why the Walmart is going to be so much better for you, even though that, you know, your all year local stores are going to close their doors. Um, But really, the world's leading authority on a particular neighborhood are the people who live there, not someone who has studied neighborhoods all over the world and da 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 da. Right. You know, and so, you know, a little bit of humility.
1: Yeah it's it's true it's it's in my field this is one one of the things this one of the things that actually led to the podcast a little bit was I was working with a doctor who was who was really trying to solve some of the more relationship related communications issues around around healthcare and one of the one of the things that I think we don't do very well in healthcare is ask people more questions about themselves they're actually the experts about yeah, themselves yeah. and you know it's the the doctors if they get enough information, our experts, but if they're not asking for the information, they're not getting the right, they're not getting the right details. So where where do you start then?
2: And there's kind of a movement, you probably know about this, but to expand what are seen as the vital signs, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, you're asked about your smoking, you know, you're sometimes shamed about your smoking or you're, you're asked about, you know, here's your blood pressure and things like that. But no one's asking you, how much exercise do you get a day? Or, you know, how much, you know, how many, how much time do you spend with friends?
1: Yeah. What are your relationships? Because, you know, like? those
2: questions, you remember those questions because you're being asked by a medical authority. Yeah. And so if they asked you, you know, um, how much do you volunteer in the community? That would, that would make a difference to you. I mean, some of it is just taking, taking those moments and the well being trust that I've been doing some work with, they're doing. Yeah. What, tell me about that. Well, they're, you know, trying to really sort of bring a you know, for... I mean, this is big thinking, but kind of a new paradigm to health. Um, and they talk about there's the vital signs, but also the vital conditions. You know, that these things have to be present for people to be healthy. And that's, you know, shelter a sense of safety Mm. opportunities for education and lifelong learning Mm. opportunities to be able to be more physically active you know opportunities to eat good healthy food those things you know are just as important to our health and um the university of wisconsin population institute which is kind of one of the leading you know sort of sources on health um health demographics and data um last summer just came out with a I thought rather striking conclusion they said that 20% of people's health is uh, attributable to clinical um, you know cl- clinical medicine and 80% of it depends upon you know personal habits the kind of community they live in you know not even access to healthcare but just you know the whole the whole context of, of life and that you know that's a pretty you know because you know let's face it i mean healthcare is is closing in on 20% of our gdp yeah and growing, you yeah. know, that is not the sign of a healthy culture. <laughs> no, no. And um, you know, and I think we need. And the solution just isn't isn't going to be what happens in the doctor's office. The solution has to be what happens everywhere else. Yeah. You know, and e- even if you're a fiscal conservative and you hate um, government spending, well, there's a place to start. How do you make people more healthy? Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I think the the problem, you know, there there is. I I, I do think some that whatever how many trillion four or five trillion dollars or whatever that twenty percent GDP is yeah it's it's supporting the economy on some level and so yeah. you know people really like when that number gets kind of pushed yeah but what it's not sustainable that's the no. problem you know what's what's happening with people exactly what you're saying yeah. there's it's it's going to get to a point where and and we' are, we're creature we're, we're behavioral creatures of, of habit. so the way that you know the way that we sort of pattern our lives, in, in, and the way that patterns in culturally, that's that other 80% yeah. for the most part. Yeah. And I feel like that's the, that's the real challenge here is how do you, how do you do behavior change? You know, yeah. you're trying to modify and, and even little shifts are going to make a huge difference in people's health. That's the one thing that I've, you know, sort of worked on my whole career is like just those little things. It, it's sort of, what was the thing that you said earlier with the blue zones, uh, Oh yeah,
2: make the healthy choice the easy choice. The easy choice, you know. So
1: I, yeah, I find I just find whatever that first easy choice is. Like, how do you how do you get started down a new path? It's usually that one easy choice, the one thing that you can do. Like, it's why I, I love your writing about walking because it's it's the one easy choice. I almost always start there with people. Yeah, and and it's and it's one of those things that can be done anywhere. And, you know, adding other pieces into that, like cycling or, you know, something else that also is, it's, it's, and there's a, there's a cost effective aspect of all this stuff too. Oh,
2: there's just so many little things that can add up, you know, think about if you go to a shopping mall, you actually probably wind up walking quite a bit from the distant parking lot to the store that's on the farther side. So if you don't shop at shopping malls, why not park three blocks? (laughs) <laughs> from your destination i mean you you'll get some exercise that yeah. way you know um it's really amazing it just it kind of it all adds up and you know and, and a lot of the things you know historically people didn't work out right they gardened and they did housework and they walked places and it wasn't like oh i'm exercising now i'm being so virtuous it was yeah. more just simply that was just the natural part of their life yeah and uh you know and that i think that's true with all kinds of things in terms of just you know sugar was something that was sort of a scarce commodity you yeah. know there wasn't a lot of honey created and sugar cane came from far away and and things like that and so um you know so it wasn't just we didn't just constantly get fed sugar 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 i mean and sugars in its own way is a wonderful thing right right <laughs> but it's just simply when it becomes kind of de facto default really just yeah. like okay yeah, and there's you know sweetener added to this and sweetener added to that and just you know there's a, and you know so, and it really is. We need big political changes and economic changes in the world, but also just simply, fundamentally, you know how people, you know, the small decisions in their life all add up. Yeah, I mean, so that's what I, I love to kind of draw attention on what people can do. Which yeah. isn't to say that we don't also need to make right. huge differences. Not you know, it's it's not an either or. Yeah, you know, it's like the you have to stop the bleeding and at the same time. Change people's consciousness. So yeah. both yeah. are
1: important. You, you need to keep your, your your awareness and attention to what's going on, but you shouldn't do that at the sacrifice of your own health and yeah. actually, you know, making those small changes for yourself yeah. right now. I think this is one of the things that I've gotten from a lot of health professionals is they get very frustrated in their jobs that people just seem disengaged from the the care of their own bodies, yeah, you yeah, know? and their uh, and their minds and yeah. you know their emotional, you know state and everything too it's and
2: that gets to be kind of philosophical i mean we yeah you know the you know modernity's metaphor is that everything is like a machine you know or maybe now we say it's about you know it's like a internet or something like that you know yeah. but it's um so if you view if you view that way then you know then it's not food it's fuel you know and and even sometimes our health. Consciousness takes that attitude too, right. if I just run three miles a day or something like that and it's just that just a, you know, we're missing so much and we're kind of just narrowing things down. Everything becomes mechanistic, yeah, exactly you know and, and if your metaphor is the world is a living thing, then you make kind of different 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 choices
1: yeah and that, that is the one thing that I find we we miss out on in, in certain I mean Minneapolis is a, I, I really think is a great blend where you have. Nature at your disposal. You can be yeah. reminded that you that you live on 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 in, in dirt, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and exactly. with trees around you and with water. Yeah. But you know, some places like New York, it's just a yeah. it's just a sidewalk on top of an island. You don't know. You, you don't even know where you are <laughs> in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean,
2: <laughs> I I love big cities, but I would really miss the crickets. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, and and but but I think I think there's something there's something vital about that for us yeah. being creatures of flesh you know yeah. and, and what we actually need from from the planet yeah. and you know and to, to really be tapped into that on a regular basis otherwise part, I think that's also part of the reason that we treat each other this way that maybe we treat each other sort of mechanically because no, exactly. part living yeah, what, 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 what,
2: what can this person do for me yeah you know it's interesting because I really do believe that um, science is on our side too and I don't mean just the science about proving climate change but there is a a fascinating article in the it was a couple it was a while back in the New York Times magazine just saying that you know really the human body should be thought of less as an organism and more as an ecosystem right, right? because you know we have all the flora in our gut mm-hmm. you know that without it you know we would die you know our immune system you know is not a is not like a boiler our immune system is like a living thing yeah you know, and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it's just, it's there. And very complex.
1: And we should think about our communities the same way. Exactly.
2: Yeah.
1: That, you know, yeah. we, 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 even though we may not see, you know, our neighbor across the street all the time, there are certain things, yeah. there's, there's a, there, there's, there's a support there, whether yeah. we're actually interacting or not.
2: No, the ecosystem model, I think really is, is, is kind of the basic building block of, the universe, you know, not the, you know, not the molecular structure, but it's the whole <laughs> ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the thrust of modernity has often been to kind of look at things in ever smaller, you know, isolate ever smaller parts of things. But you know, the connectedness of things is, you know, is remark. And there's remarkable scientific research about that. You know, I just uh, the book came out about a year ago, but there was this this German forester wrote a book about trees. And he did not do any new basic research. This is all stuff that people knew, but that most people didn't know, you know, that, you know that experts knew. But you know, trees communicate with one another. Um, there are stumps that have been around for 500 years because the trees are all connected. I'm not making this up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the trees are all connected through these fungal networks. I mean, mushroom networks, mm-hmm. fungi networks, I mean. And and so they will they will send kind of sugary substances through the fungal networks to keep certain stumps from decaying, whereas other stumps will decay in a short amount of time. I mean, who, you know, and this and this was no breakthrough. This just simply yeah. and there if there's a certain predator that is uh, attacking one particular tree, then they will send through through the fungal network. They call it the wood wide web um you <laughs> know that. and other trees then may start you know secrete some thing that you know that would drive these predators away or something i mean and it's amazing
1: i i was i read i saw a show one time they were talking about um that in a forest of of trees there are actually like trees that are like mother trees for the area yeah, yeah. and that you know we we don't realize going in and and you know doing foresting work or, yeah. or when you know lumber companies are going in that if they get the wrong tree, they they may make it really hard for trees to grow there ever again.
2: Yeah, no, be- I mean because just... of
1: the root system that has been built by the mother tree.
2: Yeah, there's so much that we can you know that we're learning that just needs to be disseminated. So yeah. that's what makes me an optimist. I mean you know this thing that I have to believe that. This information is going to get in the right hands. <laughs> Power to the people! Information of the people.
1: Good. Well, I'm. Thank yeah. you. I I, I. I. We could go on for hours talking okay. about this. I. would love to. You know, keep keep this conversation going, yeah. and maybe we can, as as you get through this book, we can. We oh can, sure, we yeah. Can, yeah we we just, re- I just talked, talked with my
2: co-author today. One of the interesting things, the guy that I'm working on the book with, and and uh, we don't have a, you know, we're still kind of in the outline stage. Is a guy named Christopher Leinberger. And he's a former real estate developer and now teaches in the business school at George Washington University. And he has uh, really been studying and covering the whole notion of walkable communities for, oh geez, probably 15 years now from a real estate perspective, but also from why they're important just to make life better for mm-hmm. people. And, and he says there's such a demand for um, walkable communities right now that he imagines over the next 15 or 20 years Nearly every, na- I mean, this is kind of uh, a social, this has social consequences, but nearly every kind of old historic walkable pre World War II neighborhood will probably become revitalized. Huh. You know, and so, and that's right, right now where an awful lot of, you know, lower income people live. Yeah. You know, and hopefully it'll be revitalized in a way that they're not driven out of their neighborhoods, but right. just simply there's such a huge demand for it. And, you know, so the job now, is how to take the places that that were, you know, created after 1950 and how to make those places, you know, kind of retrofit them to make them walkable. You know, and this has huge consequences for, as we've discussed so thoroughly here, you know, people's happiness, people's sense of community, climate change, crime. Um, Livelihood. the string, Yeah, and, and the whole bit. So, anyway, it's a... We, it's, it's a, it feels like a really perilous time and, and sometimes I just even dread looking at my phone in the morning just to see what happened the <laughs> night before but at the same time there's those opportunities there and it's just uh, I just have to believe you know that you know like the trees in the forest will prevail <laughs> Yeah, yeah,
1: I, I feel the same way well I, I appreciate your optimism and I yeah. try to have the same and I try to bring as much of this out there as possible too and I think there are you know, people like you who are who are out there, sort of pushing these ideas out there, so that you know it becomes part of the, the public consciousness too. So
2: yeah, it's been really fun talking. Yeah, I mean, this is, this you is So
1: all right, thanks so much. Oh sure. I too hope the trees and forests will prevail, Jay. Thank you for all of your contributions. Have a peaceful rest, my friend.
0: can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.